0: Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast.
1: Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your
0: imagination,
1: and tackle controversy head-on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Norman Horn, And I'm Doug Stewart. Today, we are joined by Stephanie Slade. Stephanie is the managing editor at Reason Magazine, the libertarian magazine of free minds and free markets. Prior to joining Reason, Slade worked as a speechwriter, a pollster, and a regular contributor to U.S. News and World Report. In 2013, she was named a finalist for the Bastiat Prize for Journalism. She's a proud graduate of the University of Florida, where she earned a B.A. in economics. She also has an M.A. in political communications from American University. Stephanie was also a speaker at our 2015 Christians for Liberty conference in Austin, Texas. So, Stephanie, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks so much for having me. You know, working at Reason, I'm, I'm not not used to being surrounded by more than one other person that is both a libertarian and a Christian, so this is exciting.
1: Well, we're really happy to have you here, and we love Reason Magazine and support it in in a lot of different ways. We love sharing your material, and we hope a lot of our listeners are regularly going to Reason uh, for interesting news about liberty and what's going on in the world today. Stephanie, you've written quite a bit recently about a pretty important topic to many Christians, both Catholic and Protestant, and that topic is, of course, the so-called marriage wars. It's a complicated subject to write about because there are so many confused notions about coercion and freedom, and there's a lot of things we could discuss in this regard, and you're practically guaranteed to make an enemy no matter what you say on the topic. So what prompted you to start writing and studying this cultural phenomenon?
2: Uh, Well, I mean, it's always been of interest to me as somebody who both loves freedom and liberty and who is a person of faith. Um, But one of the things I try to always emphasize, you know, because I am surrounded all the time by um, my colleagues at Reason and fellow libertarians in Washington, D.C., most of whom are not people of faith, most of whom are not Christian or religious at all is that you shouldn't need to be uh, religious yourself to care about this issue. Ultimately, it is a question of, uh, of of associational freedoms that, you know, if you're a libertarian, if you believe in liberty, um, you should want to have people's freedom respected to live their lives, express themselves, you know, uh, live out their faith with the maximum um, sort of space carved out for that as possible. Um, but, you know, I am Catholic. I, I do sort of hold down the... the, um, the Christian libertarian corner at Reason. And so it became pretty clear when I started there about Two and a half, three years ago, that um, that there was a need for somebody to write about these issues, religious freedom issues, for, you know, with the ability to do it from a sort of first first person perspective, and so that's what that's what got me started writing about religious liberty. Um, th- this particular topic of the of what I call the wedding wars, um, it was so interesting. I was actually at um, I was at one of the Smithsonian museums about a year year and a half ago, and I was looking at a temporary exhibit. And I saw this little tiny sign that said it it referenced a Supreme Court decision from the 1800s in which the court ruled that although the First Amendment protects your right to believe what you want, um, it doesn't protect your right to act on those beliefs in any way. And I went, wow! That seems like that is the root of this this whole conflict that we're having these days, which is Christians are saying, "Hey, we have the right to live out our faith." Christians and people of all faiths are saying, "We have we have the right to live out our faith," and um, and that means expressing ourselves not just when we are at church or you know at synagogue or in our homes, but also when we're out in the public square, in the marketplace, uh, you know, making a living, uh, engaging in work, raising our families, all of that. And um uh, then there's people on the other side who say, uh, "Nope, sorry, all you have, all you have the right to do is to to quote worship," uh, and uh, and that that's sort of limited to what happens in your home or in your house of worship. Um, but once you venture outside, uh, all bets are off. You got to do what we say. And I thought fascinating that this that this precedent was set 150 years ago. Uh, that that there that because ultimately. The other side has the has the law on their side. It's really it was really shocking to me to realize that the Supreme Court did rule that way. And so when when people when I'm fighting with people and arguing about the importance of religious freedom, and uh, you know I'm I'm quoting the Constitution and the First Amendment has the word exercise in it the free, you know free exercise um, that should that should suggest that the law is on my side. But ultimately they have the Supreme Court on their side. And so I wanted to look at how did this happen how how did that Supreme Court precedent from about 1860 come to be, and um, and you know, what can we, what lessons can we learn from that?
1: So, can you kind of walk us through some of your research and the conclusions that you derive from that? You talk about how the, these 150 years ago, Supreme Court decisions have led to what we see today, in a in a manner of speaking. So, kind of walk us through that. See, can you can you bring us through that timeline? Sure. Uh,
2: about so, it's funny today nowadays. You have uh, sort of traditional, mostly conservative Christians, but people who hold traditional views about sexual morality, uh, beliefs about marriage being between one man and one woman, and we're sort of on one side. And then you have people on the other side who are saying, for more or less, you know, anything goes. There, we shouldn't be we shouldn't be expecting people to stay in their boxes. Marriage can be what they want it to be. Gender can be what they want it to be. That sort of thing. Um, Interestingly, uh, the same was true about 150 years ago, um, but back then it was the sort of conservative Christian saying marriage is between one man and one woman, and it was Primarily, the Mormons, the member of this new church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who were saying, "No, no, uh, marriage and family is what we, you know, it can be, it can be what we want it to be," which is they had this institution of plural marriage of men who took multiple wives and had uh, large, multiple families living together, and um, and back then, where you know, back then the conservative Christians were in the majority, in the moral majority. And so they were able to successfully push through a series of laws that that prohibited the Mormons from practicing polygamy. Uh, and not only were they able to pass those laws, but they were able to uh, to take it take them to the Supreme Court and have them upheld by the justices who said, well, yeah, sure, the First Amendment protects Mormons' right to believe what they want, and they can believe whatever they want about polygamy, but they can't actually have multiple spouses. They can't actually practice polygamy. Um, And back then, it was, again, it was the sort of traditional view that was in the the majority, and they were winning both at the ballot box and in the courts, and it was the Mormons who were a sort of fringe sect at the time, who were considered kind of crazy, they were considered to be, you know, practicing immorality uh the, the language that you find in, if you look back at like early New York Times articles talking about the Mormons is, is hilariously overwrought, uh, talking about the evils and uh, how they, we need to extirpate the evil of polygamy and that sort of thing. Um, but so it wasn't actually that hard for, the, for them to defend these laws that banned polygamy. Um, but what they didn't realize at the time was that they were setting precedents when they did that. When the Supreme Court said, oh, sure, we can ban polygamy. It's the First Amendment you know, doesn't reach that far to stop us from doing that. It didn't occur to them that they might someday be in the minority. Uh, but, of course, today the sort of people who hold traditional views about sex and marriage, while not, you know, we still exist. They still are all around the country um, and certainly not, they haven't, you know, those views haven't gone away. But they're not sort of morally or or um, they're not ascendant in the way they were. And so now the now whereas we had the courts on our side, the Christians did uh, 150 years ago. Uh, now the other side has the, has the legal precedence on their side when they say, "Well, you're allowed to believe what you want, but that doesn't mean that you that you can't bake a cake for a gay wedding, or that doesn't mean that you can't provide your employees with." contraception and abortifacient drugs and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, you have to do what we say because uh, just like you forced the Mormons to do what you wanted back then, uh, now we can force you to do whatever we want today.
1: So it sounds like what you're basically telling me is that the legal basis for restricting or controlling the way that marriage was done in the 19th century, those same types of arguments are being used by the Supreme Court and by other states and by Uh, those who would promote uh, gay marriage or whatnot. They're using those same types of arguments today in just a slightly different manner to to restrict how people act.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And so I sort of – the analogy I really like is that you shouldn't treat the Constitution and the First Amendment in this case – it's almost as if these people back then, they treated it like a sweater and they stretched it out so that it could fit the laws that they wanted to pass – uh, within, the, within the confines of the First Amendment, it was clear that the First Amendment should not allow um, should not allow them to pass these bans. I think, in my view, uh, you know, if you if you look at what the First Amendment says, it says that Congress shall make no law. Respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. I I always come back to that word "exercise." It's a very active word. Um, It's not just about what you believe or what you know—the prayer and the worship that happens on Sunday or something. Um, I I think that it's pretty clear that if you just look at what the the text of the First Amendment says, you look at those laws that banned polygamy. We, the courts ought to have found them to be unconstitutional and struck them down, um, but they didn't. Uh, and so, and so that, that sort of stretching out of, of the, the bounds of the First Amendment to fit in the laws that the majority wanted to fit in there back then, well, you know what, once, once it's stretched out then it's hard to get it to go back into the original shape. And so now we have this stretched out sort of conception of what the Constitution says, what the Bill of Rights says, and the protections that we have. And it's very easy to now fit in laws. And today, those laws often take the form of either um, non-discrimination ordinances at the state and local level that say, if you have a business, you must serve everyone. Uh, And that includes if somebody comes to you and says, I want you to take, you're a photographer, I want you to take pictures at my wedding, uh, you can't say no, you can't say, I'm sorry, but I just don't believe in same-sex marriage, so I'm gonna set this one out. Uh, under those non-discrimination laws, you just don't have that right. Same with florists, bakers. Um, there was a, a one case I've been looking at with um, sort of like calligraphers. They, they these two girls who started a business to make wedding invitations and things like that. and And the court ruled unbelievably, the they court ruled that that was not an expressive act. Drawing and painting and writing words on paper with their own two hands was ruled by this court to be not an expressive act and therefore not covered by the First Amendment. And so the state's non-discrimination um, law that said they can't turn away a gay couple who wants uh, a customized service for a gay wedding um, was considered to be uh, valid and was not overruled. Um, so oh and then the other the other example of these um, laws that I, I consider to be sort of, you know, we stretched out the first amendment and now we can fit all kinds of laws in there. And another one is um, is the HHS contraception mandate, which I hasten to point out is not actually a law. It's sort of it was handed down by the Department of Health and Human Services. And it was under Obamacare, under the auspices of the Affordable Care Act. But nowhere in the text of the Affordable Care Act that was passed by Congress does it say that every insurance plan must cover all forms of contraception. It just doesn't say that anywhere, but the Secretary of Health and Human Services under President Obama decided that that's what she was going to interpret the law to mean. And therefore, they were able to um, to uh, impose that requirement on a lot of Christian colleges Order, you know, the Order of Catholic Nuns, the Little Sisters of the Poor, who said a lot of groups that said, "Hey, we it is against our beliefs to pay for these drugs and procedures. Um, You can't force us to do this. We have we have protections under the First Amendment." Um, But again, once you stretch that First Amendment out, it's hard to go back.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It seems like that's a we've got a a really interesting problem that's sort of been built up in a sense over the last two hundred and twenty five years, ever since the Constitution is. You know, was written and and became our founding document. Insofar as, like people have gone out of their way to interpret it, not in a in a particularly limited sense, but as to be more and more expansive to get what they want out of it. And it it, it kind of reminds me, you know, of this of the phrase: "The government that is able to give you everything you want is also the government that can take it all away from you."
0: It seems like there's a lesson here for conservatives who seem to really elevate the importance of the Supreme Court when they elect a president or when they are hoping for policies that will benefit them. And Stephanie, you said at the end of your article, Christian started the wedding wars, that there's a lesson for progressives here because they're kind of, they kind of have the upper hand in a little bit in, in in a way right now and that they better sort of be careful what they wish for, be careful what they push for.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that at this moment, um, you know, in modern history, uh, the ideas, sort of post-sexual revolution ideas, um, the idea that marriage is whatever we want it to be, families can be whatever we want it to be, and good or bad, you don't have to necessarily think that's a bad thing, but w- however you feel about those views, those are sort of the ascendant views in today's world in a way that, that would have been completely unthinkable a century ago. Um, but so the the lesson that I think is really important to take away from this, and just to keep in mind. On both sides is it's so tempting when your side is in the majority, and when it seems like the pop, you know, the pop, the, the popular opinion is on your side, um, to want to then um, enshrine your beliefs about morality into the law to ensure that everybody will have to live according to your views of right and wrong forevermore. Um, but what you have to remember is that if you can write your morality into the law now, then in in five years, ten years, a hundred years, you know, two hundred years. A different set of people in the majority with a different set of values can always undo the things that you've done and put what they believe is right and wrong into the law and thereby force you to live according to their conceptions of morality. And that's exactly what I think we've seen happen, Um, you know, and and I think it could happen. Although right now there's this moment where traditional sort of Christians uh, who believe that marriage is one man and one woman only um, have seen sort of their grip on popular opinion slip over the last few decades, um, it's certainly conceivable that the, the majority of you today could be very different in the future, and I think progressives ought to be thinking very carefully about how, uh, you know, and, and it's funny, I, I wrote this piece before the election, so everything that I'm saying now, in a sense it almost feels like, well, obviously true, because I wrote this piece um, about the wedding wars, or I wrote most of it, I did almost all the research for it, Under the assumption that Hillary Clinton would be president and that the people who hold um, sort of more uh, flexible, libertine sort of views about sex and marriage would uh, continue to have sort of legislative majorities, at least at the national level. And that they would be highly tempted to continue passing uh, laws or push for laws that would, uh, you know, just basically make it illegal for People to hold traditional views and put those views into action in any way in how they run their businesses, for example. Um, that's not actually as uh, true anymore. So it's almost like I, I called it, but I called it a little bit like the piece went went up and was published after the election, so it almost seemed like I was it was backwards-looking. So the point I was hoping uh, progressives would take away is that uh, you don't know who's going to win the next election. Maybe you think you do know who's going to win the next election, but you certainly don't know who's going to win the election in a few years or a few decades. And so you want to be careful about creating new powers or, or centralizing a lot of power in a governmental body to force, you know, force people to live according to one set of norms, because you just don't know who's going to have control of that, you know, who's going to have the reins of that powerful institution that you've then created down the line.
0: Yeah. And I think maybe the election of Donald Trump might help them see that a little bit. I mean, I don't know. It's so far, it doesn't seem to have phased them that that's the wrong approach to take.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, a couple months ago, we put um, we we put a story in in our magazine that described Obama having left a loaded gun in the Oval Office, and it was a metaphor for the amount of you know the amount of new executive powers that were sort of centralized and amassed in the hands of, of the president during Obama's eight years, and we were hoping to make the point that. Um, you should you should reconsider whether this is a good idea and whether you you know we should just generally speaking reconsider your faith in uh, in putting power in the hands of government because as we've just seen um, you can uh, you can think you know who's going to win the the election and then um, have it go completely a completely different way so um, that was I that was I think I hope that that. I, we hoped at the time that that might um, that piece might actually strike a chord with our friends on the left, and I'm not so sure that it did. It didn't actually seem like it would be, like that piece got a lot of positive attention. Like they, there were a lot of people on the left saying, "Oh, you know, Reason magazine's making a really good point. We should consider that next time." There's a Democrat, uh, you know, in the White House. Now there was not a lot of that, unfortunately.
0: Do you really get a lot of progressives saying that Reason magazine made a really good point?
2: No, not
0: very often, but like, occasionally. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> part of me wonders you <laughs> like you, you probably shouldn't have been expecting that too much. Do you, um, <laughs> along those lines, do you find that now that Trump is in office and has been doing his shenanigans for however many months now, do your friends, like on Facebook and social media, do all of your you know like left wing friends are they saying all the same things that all your right wing friends used to say? I mean, do, does it seem to have the same tone? I mean, that's been my experience. I'm just kind of curious.
2: Uh, On some issues, yes, particularly on procedural issues, uh, it's always funny to me to watch you know, without any sort of sense of uh, shame, how people can go from supporting being on one side of the filibuster to the other side of the filibuster, or being on one side of, you know, the the right of the president to um, put out signing statements and executive orders and sort of, you know, robustly exercise the executive powers, to be on the other side of those issues overnight without any sort of need to come up with some sort of plausible reason for why the that that changing, changing their minds on those issues might make sense. Um, but when it comes to this particular issue of, um, of whether we should pass laws that enforce our vision of morality on other people. Uh, I haven't seen anybody, you know, unfortunately I, w- and this is not, this was not what I was hoping for. You know, I wrote this piece in in the hopes that it might sort of, again, like uh, check a chord or, or, you know, just hit home with people on the left too, who would say, hmm, you know, there's a lesson here for us that we should be very careful about. Maybe we should take a step back. It's so tempting to want to pass laws that force people to um, to live their lives the way we consider to be right. and and, you know, um, we want to encourage toleration of um, of gay people and trans people. And we want to um, make sure that women can participate fully in the workforce. and so that we think making, um, contraception more easily available is a really good way to do that. And we hold we hold we hold all these views. Um, we ought to find ways to write laws that re- that you know require or um, insist that others uh, live according to them as well and that that could backfire. And I don't, I just, I I wish that that argument resonated and sort of was getting a foothold more than it seems like it actually is, even despite the fact that we have somebody in the White House now who they disagree with deeply, you know, and viscerally on so many things.
0: I want to get around to the issue of discrimination in a few minutes, but I just want to, you know, obviously we can guess about what could have happened if things were to turn out differently, but And I believe it was 1892 was the ruling that you said was basically the ruling that ended up kind of becoming the Achilles heel of the arguments a century later. Do you think if the Supreme court hadn't ruled against the Mormons then, what do you think might've been different? How, how would we have been played that out? Would we have been having this conversation or, or concern if you're, if you're a conservative Christian right now, you're kind of concerned about the direction of our country in those kind of ways. But what do you think might have happened? Did, did your research kind of lend any hints toward what could have been?
2: You know, I, I think it was almost inconceivable at the time. And just a, a point of clarification, there were actually a whole series of Supreme Court um, decisions from 1978, or 1878, excuse me, all the way up through the, the 1880s, um, culminating in... The Mormon Church actually reversing itself on polygamy in the year 1890. In this sort of dramatic, um, they put out a manifesto saying we no longer teach, you know, plural marriage, um, because because the the federal government was threatening to take to to take away all of their property and assets and shut them down forcibly, uh, which is a pretty dramatic occurrence. And so they they stopped teaching polygamy. Um, and uh, they reversed themselves, and they sort of recanted that that teaching of the Latter-day Saints Church. Um, had that not happened, it's really hard to imagine. I mean, it's really hard to even guess at where we might be now. I think at the time, it just seemed so inconceivable to people that it would ever be a mainstream view that marriage is anything other than one man and one woman, right? At the time, it was, it was just so ludicrous and um, considered so immoral to support such a thing. And um, as a result, it was like, it, there were, I don't think that anybody ever, it would have ever crossed their minds that they were setting a precedent that could be turned against them. Because, of course, marriage, you know, we're all, it's a Christian country um, with traditional values. Morality is, is a very important part of the sort of reason for the government to exist back then, that it was seen that way, I should say. And so they... They didn't think twice about passing these laws, and the courts I think didn't think twice about finding some excuse to uphold them. Um, I, I think we would be much better off as a country had the courts actually read the text of the First Amendment and struck down those laws back then. I think it would have set it would have set the correct tone, which is to say, I don't necessarily have to. Um, I don't mean to be here defending polygamy as an institution. I'm, I'm Catholic. I actually do believe, you know, in, in the sort of more traditional um, definition of marriage. I'm not trying to celebrate polygamy itself. But what I do believe as a Catholic and as a libertarian is that individuals should get to decide for themselves, you know, right, uh, how, what what religious liberty means to them, what acting out or living out their faith um, looks like government should not be telling me how to live my faith. You know, I should be telling the government how I live my faith. And and I think we we really lost something um, when the courts made those rulings back then in the in the second half of the nineteenth century, because um, we just sort of lost sight of of that fact that that we get to decide what what worship and what exercise of faith looks like and what it means to us, not the other way around.
1: I think that the allure of power is really where stuff starts going wrong when almost anybody, whether you're a Christian or not, is looking toward establishing some type of new law to get what you want. Because when you're the ones who are in power, it's very easy to go, well, I I can now reshape this world in my own image. Which is actually, it's actually like that's precisely what, uh, theologically, we believe that the state kind of does. Uh, as Christian libertarians is that it is it is instead of letting uh, people make decisions for themselves, and so long as that they are acting peacefully with other people, they can act as they will. Instead, we say, uh, the state says, we're going to reshape the world in our image. And whoever's going to be in power at that point, it's going, to be, it's going to turn into a disaster, and it just ratchets it, – it, you know, each time that the, the cycle continues, it just ratchets up its power. It tries to do something new. It attempts to control people in a new way, and it just ends up creating chaos. And the irony here is that if you let people, people – people believe that the state is there in order to maintain a certain type of order – and that's what they believed they were doing in the in the 19th century, and it's what they think that they're doing now: is trying to maintain a certain type of order. But as they as they keep proceeding in this regard, they manage to create more and more chaos. And if they would just, if people just let people live freely, these things <laughs> will work themselves out. It's fu- it's funny how it will do it sometimes, and we don't always expect it, but that's what happens. And so I think it's interesting that just the allure of power is not something new. It's not something that happened just in the last you know few years in the attempts of uh, the left to promote their particular view of marriage. It also has happened in the past uh, in various types of ways. And this is the progression of just how power goes. It's not unique to now.
2: Right, I did. I did SiriusXM Catholic Channel um, to talk about this research I've been working on a while ago, and at one point they stopped me and they said, "Well, hang on, though. You're not actually." Uh, in favor of polygamy, though, right? And I said, well, you know, it, it depends what we mean by that. I'm not in favor of polygamy in the sense that I don't want to be a polygamist. I wouldn't encourage my friends or relatives to be polygamists. But if I, if you, what you mean is, do I think the space should make room, you know, that that the law should make space for other people to live that way if that's how they choose? Well, then I feel a little bit differently about it. it it's the same same way I today feel about same sex marriage, which is that like I, I accept the church's teaching on that. Um, but I also don't think that that means I want to pass laws to tell other people that they have to live according to my view of morality. That's just not. That's just not what I believe. And and as um I always say as as both a libertarian and a Christian I feel this way because it's easy to understand what I mean when I say as a libertarian I think that the government should get out of the way and let people live the way they want to live. But also as a Christian, you know, I really strongly believe that um you you don't really you can't really be um. A believer without the freedom to make that choice for yourself, and you can't—you don't really have the choice and the freedom to make for yourself unless you have the ability to make a choice that I wouldn't like, or that I wouldn't choose for you, or that I wouldn't choose for myself. Um, so that's—that's that's what makes this so hard. You were talking about sort of the the temptation to power. There's a reason it's so tempting, and it's because if you don't step in and pass laws that coerce people to live like you want them to live, then there is a chance that some of them almost certainly will choose to live in a way that you don't want them to live. And that's really hard to to sort of tolerate. It's really hard to accept and and bite your tongue and, and hold back and not rush in and try to stop them when people are making choices that you consider to be wrong.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that we that we have that inclination and it's I think it's just we want people to be like us. Like it, it's and that's okay. I mean, we want people to as Christians come to a belief in Christ. We want people to come to an understanding of morality in the same way that we do. But it goes both ways in the sense of like if I I don't have the right to force them to do what I want. If they're acting peacefully, if they're not if they're not exerting force against others, I don't really have the right to go in and force them into some type of activity. I, I, don't have, I just don't have that purview in what, the, in what God is instituted for, for me and for all humans. We're all on the same moral playing field here. Be, I don't have that right, and neither do you. Neither does the state, or at least it shouldn't the state tries to set itself up to do such things and when those people who have power you know get it well then they'll tend to abuse it and that's just that is our that's our experience in the world today good as to
0: you for being able to explain that difference between an endorsement versus being permissive on a le- on legal grounds to a Catholic radio station. I mean that that that's good that people need to, you know, kind of get that message. I mean, we deal with on our web website and Facebook group all the time. People, you know, well, if if you allow for certain things, isn't that the same as endorsing it? And we're always like, well, no, the you know, that's not what it
1: means. Right. There's exactly. there's that host of I mean, there're host of activities that we disapprove of that we don't prohibit I mean, some people are teetotalers and they don't want to drink alcohol at all. That doesn't mean that we should that these people are prohibitionists as well. That that's that's barbaric at this point in, in, in history, <laughs> and so we just have to extend that and give people you know it, it give people freedom of association because that's essentially what the First Amendment is, right? It's a, it is a it is a way of practicing free association in just a mo- in a slightly more expanded form or expanded wording. I mean, isn't that correct? Yeah,
2: definitely. I I had the really cool opportunity earlier this year of going to um, the big conference for um, Christian ethicists. So people who do theology and ethics from a Christian perspective. And um, I was, I I was out to dinner with some of these people that I had met at this conference one night and they just couldn't understand how I could be both Christian and a libertarian and work for a libertarian magazine. And they, they, they were asking me all these questions. And finally, I I realized the thing that I hadn't said out loud um, was uh, there's a difference between uh, something being immoral and something needing to therefore be illegal. And we all really understand this in many other contexts. I mean, uh, a pretty obvious example that I like to point to is most people understand that it's immoral to to cheat on your spouse, to commit adultery, right? That, That that's immoral. But, you know, setting aside people who might have some sort of arrangement worked out. I'm not going to pass judgment there, but, um, you know, to, to, lie to your spouse and cheat on your spouse and commit adultery, we almost all consider to be immoral, but most people don't want to take that extra step of therefore passing a law that would, you know, uh, empower government agents to knock down your door and raid private homes and, uh, you know, pull people out of beds and throw them in jail because they're, uh, doing something that, you know, that, that's, that is immoral. We understand that there's a difference between illegal and immoral and that some things are are wrong. Lying is wrong. You know, cheating is wrong. Lots of things are wrong. And that doesn't mean that we want to have the government involved in those questions.
0: Well, and in the United States, we kind of have a third option that some people don't always think of. And that is the at what level of government should have the authority to determine any particular law, you know, at the state level versus the federal level. And I, I find myself a lot of times arguing not for complete no law about a particular issue, but sometimes, well, no, that's up to the states to decide kind of kind of argument. And that's, that's a little bit unique to the United States.
2: Yeah, the question of federalism and um, how much power should the federal government have versus state governments versus local governments is a really interesting one. Um, I always like to push back and note that... Uh, uh, there there's one sort of way of looking at it that says we should always devolve power down to the lowest level, down to the the level that's closest to the individual. I think there's something appealing about that. On the other hand, there's also uh, many upper uh, many examples of uh, local governments doing things that are um, that amount to infringing on individual rights. and so um, so I don't know, it can be a little bit tricky to decide where do you want to come down? you always want to favor federalism and, and uh, empowering local governments? Or uh, do you want to push back and say, well, you know what, sometimes even local governments can infringe on people's rights and therefore we ought to hold them accountable and um, maybe in some cases bring lawsuits against them to say, hey, you don't have a right to pass that law. You know, even, even if it is at the local level and not the federal level, you still are stepping beyond your, you know, the appropriate purview
1: And libertarians fundamentally just, we believe in the preservation of rights, we believe in upholding justice, and we believe in opposing aggression. So really, I mean, it's whatever level of government is is exacting aggression against others, whoever is preventing free association, whoever is uh, infringing upon the rights of people to worship as they will, uh, which is, again, just an extension of freedom of association and and, uh, and. and basic and basic human decency, uh, oftentimes, like we oppose all of those types of aggression, whether it's coming from the federal government or from a local government as well. And which uh, we don't have any. I think liber- there's some, there is some sometimes there's a misunderstanding is that like libertarianism does not entail federalism. Neither does it entail perfect decentralization either. In a, in a sense, we us oppose aggression, wherever it may be.
2: Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And 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 these issues when it comes to um, anti-discrimination laws. Uh, so far, I mean, there's definitely people that support passing an uh, an anti-discrimination law um, that includes sexual orientation, so that would basically ban a government uh, a business owner from discriminating against uh, a same-sex couple, for example, at the federal level. There's support for enacting one of those laws at the federal level, but so far it, they've only been enacted at state and local levels. And so these really are issues where lower levels of government are the ones that are, that are um, telling individual private actors, these business owners and these organizations, what they have to do Um, it's, it's, it's a question of state and local governments infringing on people's rights, in my view, their associational rights, like we were talking about. Um, and, and so just saying, well, it should be, it should be figured out as a lower level of government doesn't quite seem to, to solve the problem in some of these cases.
0: Do you think libertarians would advocate, and even for that matter, conservatives, I think there, we have some people in our Facebook group, the libertarian group that, they are probably Liberty leaning, but they really like that Trump is defending religious freedom and explicitly defending religious freedom and the freedom of conservative Christians. You know, Trump said at Liberty university commencement this past weekend, you know, as long as I'm in office, you know, you can, you know, feel safe basically. And I I wonder though, if the argument, Oh, we're going to, we need to protect our religious freedom is too close to separation of church and state for the left. And we'd be far better off talking about our religious freedom just in terms of freedom of association.
2: Yeah, well, so that's a great question. And I get this uh, a lot from my, my colleagues at Reason and other libertarians who are sort of more secular, coming from a more secular perspective. Um, and I definitely agree that the end game is um, freedom in all contexts, all kinds of freedom, not just religious freedom. And sometimes people will say, why Why should religious freedom have a privileged place? And um I think that they make a really important point. Ultimately, I would like to get to a point where everybody has the right to run their business however they want, to to have a charity that does whatever they want, to raise their family however they want. You know that 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 uh, that freedom extends to everybody in all forms of association, in all contexts, for all reasons. And if somebody is an atheist and says, you know what, I just don't want to, you know, I just don't want to, um, I, I have a a print shop. There was a case the other day that was about people who like a company that prints t-shirts and banners and things and says, you know what? I just don't want to, I just don't want to serve uh, people who are Christian because I don't like them because I'm an atheist. That should be fine. I mean, that should be fine for the same reasons that it should be fine for somebody who is a Christian to say, you know what? I don't want to support um, the the reason rally, which is a big atheist rally in DC every year. Um, I want the same freedoms to be extended to everybody, but I, I do I do think there's an argument to be made that religious freedom is sort of the bull, the beachhead. This is the analogy that says that we're trying to fight for the full beach of associational freedom and freedom for everybody in all contexts uh, and all places and all people for all reasons. Um, but if you lose on religious freedom, which is considered by so many people to be the first freedom and is right there in the First Amendment, the very first amendment of the Bill of Rights, um, if you lose that fight to where... To where you know, it's no longer um, an effective argument to say we shouldn't pass this law because it infringes on somebody's religious liberty. There's very little chance that we will uh, be able to win the larger fight, I think. So I think of it as a beachhead, we got to hold this ground. We got to fight tooth and nail to hold this ground. And yeah, I definitely would like to to sort of fight beyond this point and and make the argument the larger argument about associational freedom. but uh, I just I worry about, what happens if we stop talking about religious liberty? Um, because I think once you, once you sort of, it, it would be seen potentially as we have conceded that ground and that could be very, very bad for us in the long run.
0: What has been your best uh, rhetorical strategies for dealing with people on the left with this, with, in this question of, of religious freedom or, or freedom of association even?
2: One of the things that comes up a lot is um, everybody wants to draw the analogy to um, to racial discrimination, to discrimination against black people, for example, during the Jim Crow era. And I find it very, very helpful to remind them of a few things. One is that uh, Jim Crow was was imposed on people by law. It was written into the law. In other words, it was the state mandating discrimination against certain races as opposed to um, individuals, doing it in, in sort of contravention of the laws that were in the place. And so anytime we're talking about this, the government mandating or imposing or requiring discrimination, then I think we have a very important role to play as libertarians to say that's a problem. We are not in favor of that. Um, but we need to draw this distinction between public and private discrimination probably better than we do. Um, so so that's, that's one thing, is I think just to remind people that when we are talking, you know, as a— as a nation, in sort of historical context, when we talk about discrimination, we often had meant or were referring to uh, racial discrimination and discrimination that was required by law. And so that's a really different, just empirical situation than the one we have now where we have no laws that require—I mean, at this point, you have a constitutional right to, to get married, uh, same-sex weddings. You have a constitutional constitutional right to an abortion, to birth control. Um you know, you have these rights. There's no laws forcing people to be denied any of these things. The only question is, should an individual be required to participate in them in some way?
0: One of the things that you said in your article is that the government, in order to get around the whole prohibition of free exercise of of, the, of religion, it gets around it by saying that, you know, individuals have the right to believe as they want on their own time, but as soon as they venture out into the marketplace, there's sort of a forfeiture of that privilege to acting in accordance with the dictates of your faith you know one of the things that i think a lot of people say is well if you if you hang your shingle so to speak and put go out and start a business if someone wants to pay you for a service or for a product or to for food or something like that then really the only obligation on their part is they need to be able to pay you and you shouldn't be able to discriminate on that on those grounds but there seems to be a notable difference even if maybe it's slight actually between going into a restaurant and being served food versus asking somebody to make a cake for you or do calligraphy that says Jesus is Lord for an atheist, you know, or something like that. There, there's all kinds of, it seems to get a little bit more muddled than simply, you know, serving a person of whose skin color you may not like in a restaurant, which is kind of where the left typically goes. In this, So it's like, well, are we just going to have, you know, black people being denied, you know, service in a restaurant if we take away that sort of, you know, if we don't have laws that protect people? It seems to me that there's a notable difference between that and sort of what I think Mike Munger had an article about this saying that there's a difference because there's a contract in many ways involved because there's there's a time difference between when you have somebody do a wedding cake and when you're actually having the wedding. They don't just do it that day. And so there's contracts involved, and it's a lot more, I want to say the word, intimate relationship. It just seems to me that there is a little bit of a difference between buying food in a restaurant and ordering or reserving a person to do a wedding cake for you you several weeks later.
2: I both agree and disagree with you. Uh, So on the one hand, I think you're completely right that, again, if you just look at the facts on the ground today— uh, nobody no nobody is facing the types of systemic nationwide um, discrimination that we saw during for example the Jim Crow era where let's say a black family could drive for um, hundreds of miles and not find anyone who would feed them or put them up in a hotel um, where where there was just uh, it was just the scope of the problem was was very different from what what any um, gay couple, say, who needs um, some flowers or um, a wedding cake for their celebration would encounter in basically any part of the country today. I think that the facts on the ground are just different, and that if we're being sort of intellectually honest, we should acknowledge that fact, that the, the discrimination is just not widespread, and it's just not, um, it's just not of the same scale and seriousness, and frankly, it's a little bit offensive to suggest uh, to people who lived through that era that it is. Um, On the other hand, I'm also a little bit always reluctant to start drawing fine um, distinctions and splitting hairs between, well, this is a sort of protected activity and this is not. Because we just saw it, I alluded to this earlier, but there was just a few days ago a um, decision handed down that said, if you own a print shop, so you're making t-shirts and banners and things, um, you have the right to decline to serve a particular thing. So like a Christian could decline to make a gay pride, uh, materials. Also a, you know, somebody on the left could decline to make a Christian jamboree materials. Everybody has the right, because it's, it, they said this is actually printing words and images and that is expressive, but baking a cake is not. And I, I go, you know what? Okay. Well, you know, what about making a floral arrangement? What about being a photographer, a wedding photographer who is what using about putting
1: their- words on cakes?
2: What about putting words on cakes? <laughs> what about putting words on wedding invitations? Like I said, there yeah. were these calligraphers who who had the court side against them, but also more importantly, I think that if we're if we're saying there's uh, there's a difference between baking a cake and icing that cake with a particular message, we maybe have actually conceded too much ground already because. Uh, for a lot of people, baking baking a cake is going to be an expressive act. They're going to pour their love and support of that couple into into what they're doing. Um, they, as you as you said, it was sort of a commissioned for a particular event.
0: Um, Any the chef flaw- would
1: be insulted that 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 their work is not
0: considered art. <laughs> yeah, I just, we're I, not I guess we're not just I talking just, about you know walking into your local food place and saying hey can you put some names on this cake and we'll come by in a couple of days and buy it. I mean, you're asking these are. These are you know, often mom and pop shops who uh, feel a connection to the community, a connection to the people who come to them. They sit down, they talk about what they want, and so they, it is expressive in, this, in, in many ways. One of the ways in which it is expressive for them is that they participate in something special for the, for the couple. And I think that's partly why there's a lot of pushback. It's not just you know, we can talk about this. I'm not a wedding cake baker, and so I can think of this as, oh well, why don't you just bake the cake? like in my in my head, sometimes I'm thinking, why why not just bake the cake? but we're not we're not there. We don't have I don't have the authority to judge what their choices are because they very well may be a very integral part of a community in the sense that they're they participate in the celebrations.
2: yeah that, and, you that know, happen I, you asked about what um What's an argument that that actually has sort of gotten some traction when I'm when I'm debating with people on the left? And and actually, before President Trump assumed office, um, there was this the story that was going around in which a bunch of fashion designers who had uh, designed custom clothes for Michelle Obama and donated them to the First Lady to wear because you know they wanted to they wanted to dress the First Lady and have their their um, their fashion there uh, out there you know on the world stage being modeled by an, an a powerful woman an important woman. And these, these fashion designers came out and they said, We will not be dressing Melania Trump. We just, we disagree with everything she stands for. And we disagree with um, strongly with her husband and what this administration is all about and everything that they've represented on the campaign trail. And so we will not be doing what we did for Michelle Obama for Melania Trump. And I said, Great. That is, you know what? It, it, certainly, if you're going to start. Um, sort of splitting hairs about what is expressive and what is not expressive I mean there's no words there's no words that go into you know designing a coat or a dress or whatever for the first lady that that could easily come down on the side of not protected expressive speech if we were really splitting hairs but I don't want to be in the business of splitting those hairs I want to say you disagree with what the Trump the Trump family stands for and you don't want to have your name associated in any way with this administration good for you for standing up for what you believe in but now let's take a step back and say okay That same sort of freedom ought to be extended to everybody, whether you agree with the decisions they're making or not.
1: As we wrap up today's episode, we're really thankful that Stephanie came to join us, and you can reach out to her in a variety of different places. You can find her on Twitter at SladeSR. You can also, of course, find her on Reason.com and and her articles there. We are going to share a lot of her articles in our show notes page on LibertarianChristians.com, so make sure and visit our website and take a look at the show notes and you can read up a a number of articles that she's written. And we'd also like to remind you that if you'd like to reach out to us and ask a question or submit some feedback, you can reach out to us at podcast at com, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and of course our website, libertarianchristians.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.
0: The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horne. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.